Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I've always been criticized for taking pessimistic views, but there's a sort of atmosphere in the climate now of a wild apocalyptic hysteria about this. I don't think that any of that is foreordained at this point. Welcome to the New Statesman's New Times podcast, where we explore the cultural and economic shifts changing our society today, from Brexit to Trump to globalization and the future of the left. Today, joining me, Serena Kaczynski, the digital editor of The New Statesman, John Gray, the esteemed academic and author, sometimes known as the prophet of doom, who is also The New Statesman's lead book reviewer. Hello. Hi, is that John? Oh, hello, Serena. Nice to hear from you, Serena. So... You start your recent essay for The New Statesman stating that all that seemed solid in liberalism is melting into the air, which I thought was a sort of very evocative and and resonant statement. I mean, you wrote that obviously before the result of the American election was known. How much more relevant do you feel that is now? And and has your position sort of moved forward um, in light of that result? What I said in my uh, New Statesman essay, the closing of the liberal mind was that liberal thinking had failed to grasp the extent to which there is a global reaction against the type of market globalization that has been promoted over the last few decades by liberals, among others, and that this um, political revolt, which was part of Brexit in Britain, would spread and would spread to other countries. And In an earlier piece I did for the New Statesman in September of uh, this year, I suggested that it was likely there would be many voters in America who were hiding their true preferences, who would vote against Hillary Clinton, even if they greatly mistrusted or even detested Donald Trump because they associated her with those policies. They associated her with 10 or 20 or 30 years of pro-globalization policies that had left not just American working class people greatly worse off, but it also eroded the position of um, and the prospects of many people in the middle classes. So in that earlier piece, I suggested that there would be more anti-Clinton voters 
that had declared themselves to pose to pose as that that could affect the outcome of the uh, forthcoming presidential election. And so that seems to have happened. So what I was doing in my more recent essay on the closing of the liberal mind in the new statesman was take the argument further and to suggest that just as Brexit was never a peculiarly British event, that's one of the big errors that have been made by many commentators and politicians. They thought it was a peculiarly British revulsion against the EU. It wasn't. It was the first act in a play of many parts and of many acts. And the second act has turned out to be um, um, the election of Donald Trump, which, although it is in many ways different, has this in common, that a, a large factor fueling the rejection of Clinton was uh, a revolt against the decades of stagnating, or in some cases, falling living standards of people who had been in large numbers, maybe even a majority, had been had been um, not perceptibly benefited or even lost seriously when their jobs vanished or their livelihoods and communities were um, greatly damaged by market globalization. So yes, I think what's happened in America, although of course it's incomparably more important for the world, it's a much bigger event than Brexit was, is the next stage in a process that um, whose first visible sign uh, was Brexit. You sound like you weren't too surprised on the night of the US election, John. (laughs) (laughs) I I wasn't that surprised. I can't say I confidently predicted it because the only thing that the posters were right about is that, of course, it's there are complicated um, numbers to be, to juggle when trying to work out what would happen in a, an electoral system as, as complicated and, as, and in some ways as idiosyncratic as the one that produces an, uh, an American president. But they were wrong about everything else, of course. And I think by now, I mean, one of the polls, by the way, I noticed uh, beforehand, gave uh, Hillary a 99% plus chance of winning. So there's something radically wrong here, and I don't just think it's poll technique. I mean, from that piece I wrote in the New Statesman in September, I was suggesting that many people would um, conceal their preferences, even if they could be reached by the posters, because sometimes people don't respond. They might actually lie. Oh, and there's yet another possibility, which is that they might not even fully know their preferences until they actually turn up in the voting booth and, 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 and actually are faced with making a decision. So um, I wasn't surprised by then. I mean, there were periods in which um, um, Trump seemed to be falling back. But the basic situation in which there was a, it seemed to me, a large submerged group, even amounting to close to a, a popular majority of people who were aggrieved by the economic consequences of uh, um, market globalization and its impact on America and had wholly lost trust in the established political elites. Because remember, Trump has demolished not just the uh, Clinton dynasty, but also the Bush dynasty and the many of the um, traditional um, uh, leaders of the Republican Party. So there was a, an enormous submerged grievance against the um, American political system. I wasn't that surprised by uh, by, by the night at, 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 at what happened. And I suppose one thing is, you know, what's going to happen next? And of course, this is speculation, as uh, the great Woody Allen put it. Prediction is difficult, especially when it concerns the future. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
my, my guess would be, one never knows, this is a very uncertain time, but my guess is that um, the next act will be played out in Europe. The leader of France's far-right Front National proudly associates herself with Donald Trump. Victory. Anything seems possible, and in France they're asking whether Marine Le Pen will become Donald their next president. Clearly, Donald Trump's victory is a, an additional stone in the building of a new world destined to replace the old one. She's polling strongly, at least six million voters so far. Are you suggesting France, where we see the next uh, outburst of right-wing populism? Needn't be, no, I don't, need, need not be France, because um, there are several possibilities. Italy will be having a constitutional re referendum in um, early December, which could yield a result in which a, a Eurosceptic forces become stronger in, in Italy. Then there is, as you say, there is France, mainstream opinion, still assumes that Marine Le Pen can't break through because it's a two-stage electoral system and she probably doesn't have the support yet uh, to do that. But if she does a lot better than she's done in the past, then, of course, you will be shaken and the markets will start giving a response. I mean, so far since the victory of Trump, the, the euro has, um, has not done it all badly. Indeed, it's been stronger than it was before. But if there is a serious chance of either Italy or France weakening in its commitment to the EU and to the Euro, then uh, warning flags will go very quickly and you could see the global markets attacking the Euro. I think the, the political preconditions are there in Europe for several more, for another major, major shock or succession of shocks because um, the center parties are, so to speak, um, immobile. They're, they are yielding in their, in their uh, determination to support the existing structures of the um, uh, of the EU in most of uh, Europe, the parties of the radical left are relatively weak, and that creates a very unfortunate situation. Worse, I think, in some respects than than uh, more dangerous than what has happened in in America with Trump, that um, the European far right will be the beneficiary because as long as the centre parties, centre right and centre left parties remain uh, unyieldingly attached to institutions and policies that have produced mass unemployment in many European countries, that have not been able to cope with the migrant crisis, and have many other failings which have evoked popular responses from um, Sweden and other Scandinavian countries all the way through to post-communist Europe. As long as that remains the case, there's a, a serious risk, a really serious risk, of um, the far right making significant gains over the next few years. So, you know, there's a certain unreality in discussions that are going on in, in Britain now, a certain kind of parochialism, you know, should we have a soft Brexit or a hard Brexit or a clean Brexit or this, that and the other, should we do all? They're all on the assumption that Europe is stable, that the EU is stable, that the EU will three to five years from now be what it is now. It won't be. Whatever else happens. Uh, how do you think those changes would come about? And also, just to go back to what you were saying about the rise of the far right across Europe and how that's potentially more dangerous than Trump. But obviously, Trump yeah. was swept to power by economic forces, but also by a xenophobic right-wing mm. populism that's led to him being called, you know, a neo-fascist, the new yeah. Mussolini, which is probably a more accurate labelling than Hitler. So. Yeah. 
I would say I would question saying that he's less dangerous. You know, he might deport 11 million people potentially from America um, mm. and build his, you know, in- incredibly now infamous wall. Mm. Well, I think the situation is not quite like that. I'm not sure I show for, for two reasons. One is, um, although he's undoubtedly um, mobilized xenophobic and racist and misogynist forces, I don't believe that these would have brought him victory unless there'd been the background of decades of neglect by the two main parties of economically marginalized people. Supposing the American economy had continued to do well in a way in which these large groups, which might amount to a majority, had been better included, would he have come to, would he have come to power? I can't believe it. I, don't, I, I mean, I think people who think that are really liberals who think that are turning their eyes away from their own role in these policies of globalization. Uh, the Clinton family, the, the Clinton administrations were central in deregulating the banks, freeing up uh, financial institutions, and uh, actively promoting the type of globalization that had these uh, results. And not only that, I mean, that's not just a fact. That's the way tens of millions of voters perceived them as having acted and over long periods. So if there hadn't been this deep mistrust of the political classes, it wouldn't have happened. Um, so that's my first. The second thing is that America uh, seems to be to have stronger institutions than many European states. Uh, if a far-right leader emerges in Belgium or as one already has in, in Hungary or in many other European countries, Will the institutions that surround that leader be as strong as American institutions still are, and I believe still will be? They won't stop him doing everything he wants to do, but he's, he's going to find quite quickly that many of his promises can't be delivered. He's going to find that he'll be up against opposition from within the many branches of American government, or at least they'll, they'll curb him. He's going to find that elements of the old political classes will cross over and join them, but in joining them, they'll try to sort of blunt his edges. And this is against this kind of background of still very strong American um, institutions, which is five to 30s. They've gone through several world wars. The European record is much patchier. I mean, <laughs> uh, um, I, I wouldn't sort of myself rule out far-right leaders being swept to power in the next five years or so in European countries and basically just not being controlled by their institutions. So America's in a kind of, in a kind of stronger uh, uh, position. What he can do, of course, but this is what actually, I mean, this is what, moving aside from liberal opinion, if you ask what makes people in governments throughout the world most scared, apart from his general unpredictability, there are really two things that make, him, make them scared. One is he may deliver on his promises about trade and default from the free trade policies that have existed over the last 10, 20 years and more. I mean, he said he's going to pull out of NAFTA. He's um, said he doesn't like the transatlantic trade agreement. That doesn't matter too much because it's dead anyway. And Hillary said she had many doubts about it. Um, I mean, he's already demolished, you see, the free trade consensus in America. And what many people are afraid of, if you read the financial papers and kind of mainstream commentators, they say this could be a rerun of the 30s in the sense that there's a trade war and there's a global depression. That's one thing that many people are afraid of. The other thing that people are really afraid of, and I think this is realistic, is that he might deliver on his skeptical or uh, um, views regarding American policies with respect to, to NATO. In other words, if he really weakened the uh, guarantee that, which NATO has 
has as its foundation stone that any attack on any member is is produces a defense by the others. If you really kind of began to withdraw from that, then you would be in a radically different world very quickly. You'd be in a radically different world. It needn't happen. That's a worst case scenario, but it could happen. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. ask you about NATO, NATO's Article 5 on collective defense. Is that something that needs to be maybe done away with? I think NATO is obsolete. I mean, NATO this, was, you know, the intelligence world is not a very emotional group of people, but our allies in Europe are absolutely horrified. You know, I've always been criticized for taking pessimistic views, but there's a sort of atmosphere in the climate now of, of wild apocalyptic hysteria about this, that this is, you know, we're going to go straight back to the 30s, we're going to have colossal trade war and breakdown of everything, etc. I don't think that any of that is foreordained at this point. Could happen. Could maybe, happen. maybe being a prophet of doom allows you to have prescience that when the doom actually arrives, you get to have a, a, a moment of calm. Well, you see, I, what I argued back when I published my book, which was in um, 1998, by the way, nearly 20 years ago, when I said that the um, globalization model that was promoted then would break down in 20 or 30 years, people said that's completely apocalyptic. It's absolutely impossible. It's apocalyptic. But actually, what I was saying then, and then what I said later in 2000 and in, in um, 1989, actually even before that, when my in my uh, first criticism of Fukuyama, what I said about Fukuyama was, this isn't the end of history. The, the end of the Cold War wasn't the end of history. Quite the contrary. It was the resumption of traditional history, old-fashioned history. And in old-fashioned history, I mean, liberals and many people on the left don't like to hear this because they, you know, it means that um, uh, their belief that there'd been a permanent change in the world is false. But uh, what, what the end of the Cold War meant, I said in 1989, in, in October 1989, end of the piece, this is just a resumption of old-fashioned history. Now, I was amused and entertained by the fact that people said, that's apocalyptic. What's apocalyptic is <laughs> some complete 
transformation and, and a completely new order of things. The opposite of apocalyptic is that history goes on as usual. And that's what's happening now again. Now, of course, it's dangerous. It could involve damage to an awful lot of people. But the world hadn't sort of what was a, what comical now in this rather frightening situation in some ways, but that's a kind of element of comedy or absurdity in it, is that it's the people in the mainstream, the liberals in the mainstream, who are shouting apocalypse. They're saying, this is the end of everything. This could be the end. It's absolutely unthinkable. We could never imagine that it could happen. Well, why couldn't they imagine that it could happen? Did they rely on the polls? Well, they already knew from Brexit that um, they were completely worthless, most of them. But had they been to these communities where there were so many people who who had um, molded in America in the Rust Belt uh, for so long? Had they actually been to them? Had they talked to them? Had they listened to them? Uh, they probably simply took the acquiescence of these abandoned remnants of the working class and of the corroded uh, middle classes. They probably took it for granted. Well, that proved to be a mistake. But that's not to say that this is the end of the world. It's certainly, we're in a new historical era. And I think a sort of an, an, a good response, is to, a useful response is to say, well, how do we deal with its risks, which, as I've said, are, are absolutely real, um, and um, garner any opportunities that it might contain. But that's not the predominant response so far. The predominant response so far is fear, simple fear, along with denial. And and now a bit of grief as well. Yes, yes. And I think people will move towards acceptance and resignation as you do when you move through the stages of grief. Although that didn't happen over that didn't happen over Brexit. I mean the, the no. before before um, Trump's victory, the the predominant um, uh, reaction on the not universal, but the predominant reaction on the left continued to be that it could be reversed. How should the left and liberals overall sort of recalibrate and, and try and get themselves back on the right side of history? What should the response be? Well, I think they have to face up to the. I think they have to face up to their own role in these big changes. I mean, as I mentioned in the case of Europe, right throughout Europe, all of the centre parties, including the centre left, the centre parties are unalterably committed to preserving European institutions pretty well as they are. It would be wrong of us to not remember that Donald Trump and his campaign did tap into real problems. But instead of offering real solutions or the resources to make them work, he offered only someone to blame. Neither billionaire Donald Trump nor the billionaire-backed Tories have any interest in giving people back real control. But Labour exists to search for real solutions. Obviously, in the wake of Trump's victory, there's been sort of parallels drawn, partly by those within the Corbyn camp, between his victory and, and what they feel are the forces that could propel Jeremy to power, mm. um, or at least have swelled the, la the Labour membership so significantly. I mean, mm. what is your view? Do you think that parallel is valid? Or, as Ed Miliband came out and said today, does it beg a belief that that suggestion could even be made? No, I mean, I think it shows a lack of realism for a, a realistic thinking for a number of reasons. First of all, uh, there's a fundamental difference in the degree of popular support for Corbyn and Trump. Put aside any evaluations one may make, the fundamental difference between Corbyn and Trump is that Trump has been able to attract over 40% of the 
of the American vote. Now, in the case of Jeremy Corbyn, if there were a national vote of that kind, I'm not saying this would happen at the general election, um, because uh, even with the crumbling of Labour's fortresses in the north uh, of England and elsewhere, there are still mountainous majorities in many constituencies which would prevent Labour from a complete collapse. But my suspicion is that, my belief in fact, is that whereas Trump uh, attracted 40% plus of voters, of those who voted, Corbyn's attitudes and policies would, would attract about 4%, if that. Um, and I think that, you know, the test of that would, uh, would be if we ask what it was that, you know, that led such, um, in many constituencies, including Ed Miliband's, for example, led to such enormous pro-Brexit majorities. They're not going to go away either. If, if there were some kind of referendum on Corbyn, uh, he'd be wiped out in that way. On the other hand, as I also said in my piece, there are enough discontented people in the whole country that Corbyn's Labour, which is already, I think, the largest political party in Europe, could go up to about a million, could easily do that. But by the time it did that, I believe it would already be down to find it hard to um, uh, maintain a, re- a membership in Parliament, a parliamentary representation of possibly 100. So there's, just, so there's a kind of paradox there that one, ha- one has, has, to, has to grasp. It's like Trump in one sense in, in, in that Corbyn has defeated the traditional structures of his party. So it's not just willful blindness of the liberal commentariat blinding them to the possibility of a Corbyn victory? There's no possibility of a Corbyn victory. None. And uh, I think, you know, as long as they think like that, they're not contributing, in a sense, anything constructive. Uh, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't sort of say that you know, they're unique in this lack of realism. It's pretty well right across the um, political spectrum. I mean, there's still the belief in, in Britain, for example, that whatever we decide to do with our strange parochial preoccupations, Europe will be in five years' time what it is today. I think that's probably the least likely thing in the world. It'll be fundamentally different in five years. So all this talk about should we, we be in the single market or not, should we, should we do this, should we do that, most of the European countries will be ruled by different elites by then, probably. Most of them will have different policies, even if the EU still exists, which is not to be taken for granted. Let's put it, let's put it in a kind of irony, which maybe people on the left will understand. This is a time of revolutionary change, not of gradual improvement. This is a time of revolutionary change. All these people who talk about revolution, you know, now they find themselves in the middle of one, and it's an international one, don't seem to recognise it. It's true. I mean, it seems to be a sort of smashing of capitalism, really, a recalibrating of capitalism through democratic revolution. It's a reset on capitalism, but it won't go on as before. It doesn't mean it'll, you'll have a different system, a radically different system, but it'll, uh, it'll change very much. I mean, the type of globalised capitalism, open markets, freedom, freedom movement, capital, all these things that have existed up till now and which were supposed to be leading to a global free market won't happen. But the other thing is that won't happen. People never ask, what do you think China, what will China do in all this? Um, will, it, will it continue to move towards a kind of Western style of capitalism? Absolutely not. I mean, this will make it more inclined to uh, slow down in so-called reforms and um, take it take it to a different facility with Russia. Um, so it is a, a really big event, this, whose consequences we can only grasp at through the fog. But some of them, 
like a further weakening of the EU, like the dangers of trade war and of a collapse of security in Europe because of a, a weakening of, of NATO. Some of them can be fastened upon. But I would actually prefer, you know, if it would be better, surely, for everybody, if people responded more calmly and rather than languishing in, in grief or, or exploding in fury, they asked themselves what could be usefully done to steer through these choppy waters that are now inevitable. Thanks for speaking to us today, John. No, thank you. There were great questions, Serena. Any listeners who want to explore more of the themes raised in our conversation, John's essays are available to read in their entirety on the New Statesman website. Just go to our writers and look for John Gray. Thanks very much. You have been listening to the New Statesman's New Times Future of the Left special podcast. And you can find more information about all our other New Statesman podcasts at www.newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>